Hi, everybody. I'm Diane Brady. I'm here with Jeremy Allaire, who is the co-founder and CEO of Circle. Nice to see you, Jeremy. Thank you. Great to be with um, you. This is your eighth Davos, you said. I think so, yes. So let's start with how the conversations and the tone has changed in the time you've been here. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, right? I started coming in the late uh, 2009, mm -hmm. uh, 2010 uh, kind of time frame. Um, and, you know, I, I think as you went into like the mid to late teens of, uh, of the World Economic Forum, um, you know, th there was a period of time is maybe peak globalization um, and uh, and so much of the focus, uh, you know, Klaus had organized around this idea of, you know, we're entering the fourth industrial revolution and there's all of these, you know, very significant kind of the world being more connected than ever, more connected and these rapid advancements of technology and, and, and that that would kind of fuel this next phase of, of improving the state of the world. And I think I, you know, sort of all of us saw both because of the acknowledgement of the climate crisis, but also because of political instability, nationalism, balkanization, all these things post 2016, mm -hmm. uh, really even starting before that with Brexit, you, you really saw the, 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 the nature of the focus shift. And so obviously then we went into pandemic crisis and it was uh, you know, dealing with all of the aftermath of the pandemic crisis. Uh, and so, you know, here we are, you know, I think this week. And while there is some focus on fundamental technology breakthroughs like AI, like you said, you can't miss uh, an AI panel or, you know, every enterprise company is now an AI company mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's the kind of optimism around how can um, industry and the public sector be driving, you know, significant technological change uh, and, and societal change that comes from that. Um, there isn't as much of that as there was during an earlier period. And it reflects yeah. the, 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 the political and economic reality of the world in many respects. But, uh, you know, as I was saying, as a technology entrepreneur uh, that is very focused on the way internet technology in particular can, you know, improve the world, you know, I, I certainly would love to see more dialogue that's forward looking in that way. Well, what's interesting, and I, I take your point, um, what's interesting is a lot of the conversation here is about what's happening with the rise of populism and this distrust of technology. A lot of it is around AI, but, you know, you're in stablecoin, the crypto space. Mm -hmm. Talk about how the conversation there has changed, because certainly in the U.S., we're paying attention to Bitcoin. Again, I think there's a lot of confusion about what's happening on the regulatory front. Mm -hmm. What are the conversations you're having? Well, it's been a, a significant evolution. I think um, there's a lot of noise uh, during the, the huge kind of uh, uh, bull market, as it were, previously. And now there's a lot more signal, which is, um, you know, the, the companies that, you know, focused on building trusted, transparent and, and, and compliant, you know, uh, you know, offerings are the ones that have survived and, and in fact, are thriving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a huge difference is, in fact, in many parts of the world, in fact, almost every major financial market center has either enacted or will enact uh, you know, comprehensive regulation of this market and especially the stablecoin market. And, and so it's really shifting and it's shifting towards this is here. It's here to stay. It's being integrated into the traditional financial system. Even 
you know, the Bitcoin ETF, which is, yes, it's about people who want to invest and trade in that, that particular digital commodity, but it's also about major regulated traditional financial players integrating into this ecosystem. And so it is, there is a, a real shift, uh, uh, an understanding that this is lasting. And I think that's creating more curiosity uh, around, okay, I need, to, I need to double take on this technology. Um, I, I, I need to really understand what, where are the applications happening and, and what is driving it. And for us, that's exciting because without any doubt, the killer app a blockchain technology is stable coins, which brings the power remind of dollars people of, Yeah, remind people of the benefits of stable coin for those who don't know. Yeah, the basic idea is that you can take traditional fiat money, mm -hmm. like uh, dollars, mm -hmm. and you can um, uh, essentially connect it to blockchains mm -hmm. and issue digital currency versions of those dollars. And unlike traditional electronic money, uh, these digital currency dollars get the power of the internet. They have the ability to be transacted and transmitted at the speed of the internet with the cost efficiency essentially of just sending data and to do that globally and to do that in a way which is open and accessible to anyone with a device connected to the internet. And so really what the internet has done for information exchange, for media, for communications, stable coins do for traditional money. And, and bring the power of open internet infrastructure to traditional money, kind of, we like to call it open money. Um, and, uh, and so that's what stable coins really bring. Um, in particular, stable coins like USDC, which have been designed around, you know, kind of a, a reserve model, a, tr a transparency model and a regulation model around them that allows the, the holders and users to know that these are in fact, you know, fully backed digital dollars. Talk a little bit, are, are regulators getting it right? What are you seeing on the regulatory front? Because there's still, I mean, are you often lumped in with crypto, first of all, unfairly? And secondly, when you look at the regulation happening in the US, especially relative to the rest of the world, how are we doing in making it competitive and safe? Well, I'd say, I think broadly in the major governments in the world, in, in, the, in the markets that, um, you know, the largest kind of financial markets and trade markets, um, we're seeing really positive developments uh, overall. So you're seeing really the twin pillars of regulation are, you know, if you're going to be a kind of intermediary, a financial intermediary that deals with digital assets, mm -hmm. whatever kind of digital asset, you need to, you know, be a properly registered, audited, you know, have the right security, the right anti-money laundering, the right controls, like, you know, fundamental things to be mm -hmm. a financial institution. So it's defining that. And, and that's now getting broadly put in place, which is, which is very important. The second is specific to stable coins. And interestingly there, 2024 is the year of stable coins from a regulatory perspective. Already have laws that are going in effect for the entire you know, 800 million people in the Eurozone. We have laws in effect in Japan. We have laws that are going to go in effect in Singapore, Hong Kong, the UAE, uh, the UK, and then advanced legislation in the United States. And broadly, those regulatory frameworks, in many respects, reflect the operating model that Circle has been under mm -hmm. now with this business for you know over half a decade. And um, and so I think these this is good regulation overall. Um, there's some differences between them, and so that creates its own set of challenges, kind of 
normalization, standardization, that kind of thing. But very significant solid foot forward. And you know, I think the outcome of that is at the end of this year, um, you know, society and you know, corporations and others will know these these digital dollars or digital euros that are issued under these kinds of stablecoin laws will be an uh, integrated part of the global financial system. And that's a huge evolution uh, mm-hmm. from where we've been. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the fate of the U.S. dollar, especially as you've seen countries like China, you know, India, Russia start to basically, you know, denominate some of their debt away from the U.S. dollar. What are you what are you seeing? And what do you think? I mean, I know it's you're not necessarily, you know, in the maw of that world, but, you know, dollarization is something that very much impacts your business. Definitely. And, and I like to call it digital dollarization, which is actually a phenomenon that we're seeing happen right now um, in, in our new uh, you know, state of the USDC economy report for 2024. Mm-hmm. When we look at what's happening with USDC around the world, we are seeing demand for digital dollars uh, in emerging markets all around the world where individuals, households and you know, small and medium businesses want to hold dollar stable coins and transact in dollar stablecoins instead of their local currencies or instead of their local banking systems. And that reflects one, that dollars are still what people want, even if their governments might be saying something else from a political strategic mm-hmm. perspective on the ground, people want dollars. And, and then secondly, I think what's really interesting about it is it really brings light to this issue that the currency competition is increasingly a technology competition. And so a lot of times people think of currency competition as having to do with, you know, your ability to pay debts or your monetary policy. Well, it's also about your technology strategy and and what you're doing to kind of give your currency Internet superpowers. And so this technology competition around currency is a very real thing. And that's a message that we certainly have uh, brought to Washington, which is to say, if there's going to be a digital currency space race, and the United States wants to win, it needs to enact legislation that empowers regulated you know, financial industry participants to issue and operate and, and run this kind of digital dollar infrastructure. And that's the best thing that the United States can do to accelerate its currency competition in this new era of internet-based financial systems. Can we unpack that a little bit? Because I think about China as, as often being a major competitor of the U.S. Um, I don't know a lot about what's happening on the regulatory front there in terms of what you're talking about. Where do they rank relative to us in that respect of actually creating a vibrant you know, digital infrastructure? Well, China as a whole has invested massively in building a vibrant digital infrastructure, both in the public sector and the private sector. But for uh, yuan-denominated coins? So today, uh, you really have digital money in China is dominated by the private sector. Mm-hmm. So Alipay, WeChat Pay, yep. these are the dominant kind of mediums of exchange. And the government has put forward a, uh, a government-run digital yuan um, as kind of a third way. And in some ways, it's kind of an op- a feeling like we have to make this available because we don't want the only thing that's available to be these private sector forms of digital money. Now, that has had limited uptake. Uh, we'll see how that evolves. Um, but 
my belief is that the Chinese government is not going to be the first to move on this. They may be the last to move on this. And so I would expect that they're very closely watching all of these other major countries that are making stable coin laws that are enabling the private sector to kind of issue and operate using mm -hmm. blockchain technology. And, um, and I think that, you know, ultimately they will lean in hard on this and they have, you know, some extraordinary companies that, you know, could compete in this space. Uh, you know, so I, I think, um, you know, that there are certainly my, my estimation is that they're watching very closely. And in fact, they have some very major efforts around blockchain technology. So government backed efforts yeah. around blockchain infrastructure across all forms of industry in cross border in the Belt and Road. And, and so blockchain technology is a strategic imperative for them. And that is a weakness for the United States. It has not become a strategic imperative for the United States government. And the United States government needs to respond to that. It, it is a national competitiveness, national security and national economic question. Anytime you say the word national and policy together, it rarely goes with the U.S. So how optimistic are you that we will get our house in order in that front? You know, I, I remain um, I remain optimistic because the United States uh, plays such a pivotal and central role in the global financial system. And if there's going to be a major new uh, technology innovation in the global financial system, the United States will come in and, and, and have its role. Um, I think similar to China, it doesn't need to be first, uh, it doesn't need to be last. And so I think um, as these standards have emerged and you know, the US, by the way, through the US Treasury Department and the Financial Stability Board has absolutely been pushing for comprehensive regulatory sure. frameworks. And yeah. so at a government strategic level, they've been pushing for it. How we enact laws, the difference between the administration and, and agencies and Congress and the courts, and there's a lot of unique sausage making in US, the US policy uh, apparatus. And so we're going through that now. This has become a bipartisan issue. This has become an issue which many stakeholders from you know, financial technology innovators like Circle to the biggest banks and asset managers in the world, all and the biggest payment companies, we all have a stake in this. And so I think it's moving along. I'm optimistic specifically around stable coins that we're going to see payment stablecoin laws you know, passed mm -hmm. in the United States uh, because it, it's, uh, I think it's too challenging for the United States to, uh, to not do that. So can we step back a second, Jeremy, the political climate right now with regard to, well, you mentioned bipartisan, just there's, there's almost sometimes there's a weaponization of innovation and there has not been a lot of um, coordination. How is that impacting you? Talk a little bit about the political environment and the degree to which, um, what advice you would have for those policymakers, given where we are right now? Well, I, I think um, there are there are topics which are just nonpartisan topics, and I didn't say bipartisan; I said nonpartisan. Right? They're not about what your political affiliation is. They're just facts on the ground. Right? The emergence of generative AI is an example of this. Is something that's it's a nonpartisan issue. Now, there may be partisanship in terms of heavy regulation, not heavy regulation, et cetera. Fear versus FOMO. I think yeah. it's quite a political issue, actually. For sure. But what, what I find is in these is it's not it is not really what your political party is. Mm -hmm. You know, you're seeing, you know, 
an incredible number of you know very innovation focused Democrats that are very focused, for example, on the digital asset industry. And you're seeing also, you know, I think very pro markets, pro competition, pro U.S. competitiveness. Republicans very focused on that issue. You're seeing national security hawks on both sides who are coming at this and saying, you know, hey, we got to deal with you know kind of the illicit finance uses of this. And so that's what I mean in the sense that. There are, there are kind of pockets of interest that don't have to do specifically with your party affiliation. They have to do with your point of view about what's important for the United States. And so that's where I, I, I see more and more of that happening. And I, and I think you'll see that as we go through this electoral cycle as well. I think you're going to see lots of candidates on both sides of the political uh, you know, uh, landscape um, who are kind of stepping in and having a strong point of view about this and, and wanting to be proactive about making sure that the U.S. doesn't lose its leadership position. Does it matter the outcome of the U.S. election? I personally believe the U.S. election has extraordinary implications you know, for the world. I think there's there's a lot on the line uh, in terms of the ultimate position of the U.S. and how our allies view us and, and uh, how our economic partners view us. And so I think there's a lot at stake. I mean, could you, I know it's, you know, these things are personal, but what are the consequences that are being talked about here? I don't know if there's, people have asked you about it as a, you know, U.S. Silicon Valley, you know, technology entrepreneur. Um, how should, what are some of the issues we should be focused on as we head into what's an important year, as you mentioned, and also an electoral year? Well, I think in, in the United States, um, there are these, you know, Big issues on the economy. There's there's big issues around the, the border. I think there's um, you know there's there's big issues around some of these major technology changes. What's happening in the labor force? Um, you know the uh, obviously a very large issue that's on everyone's minds is the affordability of the U.S. Uh, uh, you know government debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are all you know key issues that people are are are, are focused in on. Um, I think. Um, you know, I'm not having a lot of uh, U.S. domestic political conversations here, um, but uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think a general theme is, is I think, for many of the participants here, um, there's a really a, a strong desire to kind of move outside of the severe partisanship that we've seen uh, and, and I think be in a place where the U.S. can speak with one voice and face the world uh, in a unified way, given the complexity of what faces the whole world and what faces the United States. Are you optimistic that's likely to happen? It's very early in this electoral cycle, so I think it's it's completely unknown what could happen. Let me, I just want to step before and back to, I've lived in Asia, I've lived in Africa, and I know that the way people trade currency is very much reflective of their level of trust in government, right? Sometimes they trade money in the street. Obviously, we're in a different world now. What are you seeing, since you also get some insight into terms of how people are, in, es- in essence, sort of exchanging mm-hmm. money, are you seeing any interesting trends that you think are emblematic of that level of trust or lack of trust? You mentioned it a well, little bit. Well, I mean, there's not, not a lot of big surprises there. I think in, in, in markets and in countries where there's significant currency devaluation, you see a particular behavior. I think um, in, in markets where um, 
you know, there's, uh, you know, significant capital controls. You see certain behaviors um, and those are not surprising. But um, you're also seeing, I think, interestingly, in markets that have significant amounts of cross-border, internet-driven uh, commerce behavior or where the, the labor market participants um, uh, are, are more remote and distributed internationally, I, I think what's interesting is we're seeing more, um, you know, more firms and more households, as it were, that are trying to adopt these new technologies like stable coins, not because they're trying to flee their currency or this or that, is that they've actually determined this is just a better way to, mm -hmm. to operate. It's sort of like when people realize, like, God, I can do a FaceTime call instead of paying a phone company, however yeah, much, right? Yeah, why wouldn't you? So I think that people are kind of seeing, like, wow, this is just a better utility. So I'm just going to start adopting it. And, you know, it's not the general motors of the world that are choosing to do that first. It's sort of the individuals and the, and the small and medium enterprises that are, have more degrees of freedom can move faster. They're, they're starting to do that. And that's really exciting to see. One other question, which is getting back to sort of your roots. Um, there's a lot of discussion here around trust. And I was seeing the Edelman Trust Barometer. And one of the things that's interesting is in some ways, the weaponization of innovation and how um, Republicans in particular don't trust that innovation is working in their favor. I don't know if you see that or if you feel that there is a risk that politics is starting to get into the realm of what in essence should be just a growth engine, what you're doing and what others are doing. Well, I think um, people care, care about you know their purchasing power. Mm -hmm. as it, is it up? Is it down? They care about whether they're maintaining sustainable jobs. Uh, are those jobs, you know, uh, are they seeing wage growth in the face of inflation? Um, I think, pe you know, people, people care about uh, the stability of benefits and other things. So there's a lot that kind of households are tuned into. And so it's very easy to sort of say, hey, there was, there's something happened technologically or something happened where that changed the mix on that. And it's very easy to blame the technology there. But I, I think that rather than a failure of technology, in fact, those are often examples of policy failures uh, of, of anticipating and adapting to that. Yeah. Where I think we're facing a pretty massive inflection point on that with AI, which I personally believe has the potential to mass displace uh, a huge number of, uh, of professionals. We're not talking about people who work yeah, these in are manufacturing, workers, yeah. professionals at, at an extraordinary scale, but it also has an extraordinary potential to empower professionals to take on and do things that were inconceivable to them in the past. And so um, that's obviously incumbent on the private sector, I think, first and foremost to navigate, uh, but that also should be as a kind of framed as a backdrop of public policy objectives. Yeah, well. and communicate too, right? Because you get lumped in the same bucket, to your point. I mean, you're talking about a lot of nuance that doesn't always come out in terms of the discussions of how this plays out. Yeah. Is there anything else on your radar you want to put on ours from here or otherwise? Um, yeah, I, I think um, um, I, li I like to I like to believe and, and, and I think I see um, despite all of the you know, complexity and, and turmoil, um, I actually think there are 
a lot of tremendous green shoots in terms of, uh, of the global economy. I think there's a lot of interesting green shoots in terms of breakthroughs in, in, um, in carbon reduction, in energy technology. There's obviously, I think, some very significant breakthroughs in the development of this new internet financial system, the application of AI. So I see a lot of green shoots and I think it's, it's up for grabs uh, sort of conceptually whether you know five to 10 years from now we're in a, a kind of renaissance of kind of global dynamism mm -hmm. uh, or you know as some would say where we've descended into chaos i'm certainly more on the former than the latter that's right here's to a renaissance as opposed to chaos thank you for joining us thank you